you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the book of Titus, near the end of the Bible, uh, just before uh, Philemon and Hebrews. So if you hit the big book of Hebrews there in the New Testament, um, you're close. Just go back a little bit. We'll be in, in Titus, um, the last verse of chapter 2 and most of and uh, uh, seven verses in chapter 3, um, and we will wrap up Titus next uh, Sunday. My thought was to do four sermons on Titus, and it's just sort of extended, which I think is fine. Um, it'll work out well. So we'll be in Titus uh, 3. We've been thinking about this letter, uh, just to catch you up to speed, because we're just going to jump right into the text this morning. But it's a letter written by Paul to one of his sons in the faith, Titus, who was a pastor on the island of Crete. Titus is dealing with Cretan culture um, that is worldly, and he's dealing with false teachers that are saying uh, that you need something besides God's grace um, to, to earn salvation. And so Titus is, is being instructed by Paul as a young elder, as a young pastor, about how to, um, how to lead and train this church specifically in good works, to see good works and godliness formed in the people of Crete, in the people of his church, and that the gospel is the power that's going to accomplish that. And so I just want to jump right in to Titus. Uh, if you're at chapter 3, just jump back one ber- verse into uh, chapter 2, verse 15. We'll start there and go through verse 7. Paul writes to Titus, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness... The loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As you look at these verses, we find right at the end of chapter 2 and at verse 1 of chapter 3 that Paul is again encouraging Titus to do some instructing, to do some teaching, and he's using lots of of different words uh, for how Titus is to instruct and teach the church in Crete as he desires to see these good works and godly living formed in their life. We saw this in chapter 2. In chapter 2, as Paul addresses the whole church, and is encouraging Titus for what the whole church is to do, he uses lots of different terms for how they are to to teach. So you see back in chapter 2, it says in verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then later on, um, at the end of verse 3, the older women are to teach what is good. Verse 4, they are to train the young women uh, to love their husbands. And then later on in verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So he is to teach. The older women are to teach and to train the younger women. The older men, along with Titus, are to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. 
And everyone is supposed to live a life that's worthy of emulation, a life that is worth following after. Then here again, Paul is picking up again and encouraging Titus to do some more teaching. But he uses a variety of terms. Do you see it? Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. And then in in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, remind them. And in the midst of all of this is that last phrase of, of verse 15, let no one disregard you. So Titus is to declare these things, which would probably be more formal teaching. He's to exhort and rebuke, which probably would be more one-on-one sort of conversations that he's having. And he's to remind them, the, the people in his church, of how they are to act and how they are to be. And all of that's to be done within a life that no one can disregard him, that he's above reproach. No one can accuse him of, of false living and, and not practicing what he preaches. He's to have a life that is above reproach. So Titus is, is called to do all of this. And specifically what, he's, what, what, what Paul is telling Titus to do is to teach the church how to live in the world. The focus up to this point has been about the church, establishing elders within the church, how the church is to function within itself as older women, older men, young men, young women, how they are to function as the body of Christ. But now he starts talking about as the church, what's it's gonna, what is it going to look like for you to live in this world? What's it going to look like you when you go to work on a daily basis? How can you live in a culture that's filled with Cretans, Cretans who are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons? How are you going to live in that culture? How are you going to live in a culture that's filled with false teachers who are led astray into legalism? And so too for us. How are we as God's people going to live in the midst of a culture that's marked by the same self-centeredness, the same reckless pursuit of pleasure, the same consumerism, the same gluttony. How are we going to live as people of the truth? People who talk about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. How are we going to do that in a culture that wants to say that salvation is either by works or wants to say that salvation is basically everyone except for those that are really bad? How are we going to live in this culture? Again, up to this point, he's talked about life within the church, which is what equips us and and trains us and sustains us and encourages us to live in a world that can be hostile to what we believe and and how we are called to live. But now he's going to give us instruction about how to live as God's people in the world that we are called to live in. As in chapter 2, he's going to begin with a list. He's going to give us a picture of how we as God's people are called to live in this world. Then in verse 3, he's going to move to a reminder of who we once were. And then in verses 4 through 7, he's going to talk about what Christ has done and how he has changed us. Which Those things serve as a motivation for us to be able to live the way he's called us to. So these seven verses, they're going to teach us this. This is our big idea for the morning. Remembering who we are, or I'm sorry, remembering who we once were and how we were changed will transform how we live in the world. That's a big sentence. Remembering who we once were, and how we were changed will transform how we live in the world. So remembering who we once were, that's going to be verse 3. Remembering who we once were apart from Christ. And also, secondly, remembering how we were changed, what, what God has done for us through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, will transform how we live in the world, which is verses 1 and 2. Remembering who we once were, how we were changed will transform how we live in this world. Remembering. That's a key word. 
Uh, one of our great problems is that we forget. Uh, we just forget. Uh, the, the role of the elders, I think, is to teach and to instruct, and it's, um, but, but oftentimes it's just to remind us of things that we forget. Um, that's like the role of a parent, isn't it? I'm usually not teaching new things. I'm just reminding people, of, children, of what I've already, what I've already taught them. In fact, the, the church doesn't often give new insight and information, but much of we're doing, what we're doing Sunday after Sunday, much of what we're doing in small groups, much of what we're doing one-on-one, is reminding one another of what we have forgotten that we already knew. We often, I think, fall into the trap of thinking that the church is supposed to give us something new every week. We should always be learning. Granted, I I get that. We should always be learning. But do we remember all the things that we have learned? And do we remember them in such a way that it's, it's transforming us, that it's changing the way that we live? Don't despise hearing the gospel every week. Don't despise hearing things that you've heard many times before. Because you know what? You forgot them. Because I forgot them. And I forgot that maybe I remember them, but is it being worked out in my life in the way that it's supposed to be? And I think that what Paul is telling Titus to do is he's saying, listen, you just got to keep reminding them. Again, sometimes we think, well, I already told them once. Well, you know, we got to keep reminding ourselves over and over again. Because I forget, and you forget. And the new year is a good time to reflect. It's a good time to remember the past. And so here at the beginning of the year, I I want, through God's word, to remind you of who you once were. I want to remind you of what God has miraculously done in your life through salvation. And then I want to encourage you as we move into a new year about how that should be continuing to transform the way that you live in this world. So Paul begins here in verses 1 to 2 by describing how Christians are called to live in the world. So we'll call this first section, Transformed Lives in a Hostile World. That's verses 1 and 2. Transformed Lives in a Hostile World. He begins right away, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. It's interesting. Submissive there is the same word of instruction that we saw back when we were in in October when we were in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 3 and we were talking about governing authorities and what our role is to be within the government. Uh, And as Paul considers how we're supposed to live in the culture in which we are, he begins by saying that we should recognize that there are structures of authority that exist in society, that all authority is ultimately from God, and so therefore obeying the authorities that are over us, when we do that, we are obeying God. When we submit to the governing authorities, when we submit to any and every authority in our lives, we are submitting to God. We are honoring him. We are obeying him. Now, I'm not going to get into the nuances of what that looks like when we choose to submit, if there's times that we need to not submit, because we talked about that, and we answered every question that you could ever have about that back in October, right? Uh, No. But, but But I think it is interesting to note that this is not something that Paul just did in Romans 13, just did in 1 Peter 3. Here it is again. He's talking, listen, be submissive to rulers and authorities. That's part of how we live in the world. This idea of submission, though, is actually, it's also found back in chapter 2, verse 5. The older women were to teach the younger women about submission to their husbands. But you also see it in chapter 2, verse 9. Look there at verses 9 and 10. We skipped over this last time. It says, bond servants or slaves are to be submissive, there's the word, to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
Now, right off the bat, bond servants, slaves, makes us, we need to in some way tackle the issue of slavery in the scriptures. Now, that's a big issue, and it's one that I really don't feel adequate to tackle um, at this point. I think we can certainly say that forced slavery, the buying and selling of people to be treated as a person's property is wrong. It is sinful. It goes against creation itself and the, the way that God has created us in his image. But so, so in light of that, let me offer two sort of general thoughts thinking about what Paul is doing here by giving instructions to, to those that are slaves um, and thinking about that in the absence of him condemning slavery. Because that's not here, is it? He doesn't condemn it. He's offering instruction to slaves for how to live. Um, so two general thoughts. The first is that we should be very careful about equating the slavery that Paul is talking about with the, the slavery um, that's found in the history of the United States. Um, I, I don't feel adequate to talk, again, about the details of ancient slavery. But I don't want us to automatically assume that when he talks about slaves, that we, that we think about race-based um, forced enslavement. That's the, the, the thing that scarred our nation so viciously. I, I don't think that's the kind of slavery that, that, that Paul is, that's going on in Paul's day. Um, secondly, Paul giving instruction to slaves doesn't mean that he condones slavery. In fact, the next book, the book of Philemon, uh, Paul writes a letter to Philemon and tells Philemon that he needs to let his slave Onesimus go free. And so just because he's giving instruction doesn't mean that he condones slavery. So what's going on here? Here's what I think is happening. I think it, Paul is, is acknowledging the existence of slavery in the world in which he lives. It exists. And there are slaves who are Christians. And those slaves that are Christians need to know how to live. They are in that state. And they need to know how to live in a way that would honor God. They are slaves and they are followers of Christ. So what do they do? He gives them instruction in verses 9 and 10. Be submissive. You need to be well-pleasing. Don't argue. Don't pilfer. Show good faith. Adorn the doctrine of God in the way that you serve. In a similar way, Paul offers instruction to people who face persecution. Because he approved of persecution? No. Because people were facing persecution. And they were Christians. And they needed to know how to react and how to live. And so that's why he gives instruction. Now, the, the instruction doesn't, given to slaves is not an approval of the practice, but it's an acknowledgement that, in a broader sense, that the Christian life, think about this, the Christian life can be lived in any context that we find ourselves in. In any world system that we find, in any nation, any government, uh, any job, any neighborhood, any city, it, the Christian life can be lived. You can honor God in whatever context you find yourself in. There is no condition, there is no place where you can say, I can't walk in righteousness and holiness. You're never forced to sin. And there is no situation that is so bad that you cannot honor God in that situation. We saw this with Joseph, didn't we? All the terrible things that happened to Joseph. And yet, God was with Joseph. And Joseph honored God. Are there times when resistance and disobedience are necessary? Yes. But is there also the ability to live and to adorn the gospel in such a way that God is glorified no matter what the circumstance? Yes. There's a man named Eric Little. If you've seen the, the movie Chariots of Fire, uh, you know about him. He was an Olympic sprinter. 
won the gold medal, and later went on to become a missionary in China. And while he was serving there, Japan invaded uh, the country. And he could have left, but he chose to stay and to serve the poor in China in the midst of that situation. Eventually, uh, Grace uh, ran out as far as the governing authorities, and he was sent to an internment camp. And he suffered from malnourishment. He had a brain tumor that he did not even know about. Um, But the testimony of everyone that was in that internment camp was that Eric Little was marked by joy, by service to others, and by love especially for the children of that camp. This is what one survivor said about Eric Little. Often in an evening I would see him bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these penned-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. At one point, in fact, he had the chance to be released. Winston Churchill had organized a prisoner exchange, and he gave up his spot to a a woman who was pregnant, thereby saving her life and her unborn child's life. And he would die in that internment camp a few months before it was liberated. And yet, in the midst of that situation where we would say, how can you honor God in that situation? He never gave up his integrity. He never gave up his witness for Christ, no matter what the situation was like. Was the internment camp camp evil and wrong? 100%, yes. But Eric Little found a way to honor God in it. And so, too, we are called to model Christ-likeness. No matter what situation we are in, no matter what circumstance we are in, we are called to honor God. And we can do that by being submissive, by being obedient. You notice next that we are to be ready for every good work. Ready for every good work. Reminds me of 1 Peter 3.15 where we're told to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is within us. But we're also to be ready for any good work that presents itself to us. And I think if we're ready for every good work that presents itself to us, a lot more people are going to be asking about the reason for the hope that is within us. As I think about this readiness for good works, the image that comes to my mind is of a deer. I don't know if you've ever seen a deer in the forest. Its ears are always up, always listening. Its, its, its eyes are always alert, looking for danger. They, they will pause and just kind of perk up, and you can see a deer looking around, smelling, looking, listening, always alert. And we should be the same way, not, not in fear, but, but in love. We should always be walking through life like the, with, with hypersensitive to opportunities to do good. Opportunities to show love to others. Opportunities to to bless. Our senses should always be seeking to bless others and to love others and to serve others. We should be ready for every good work. Notice next that our, our eyes and our ears are to be open, but our mouth is to be shut. Not with regard to speaking about the gospel, but with regard to speaking evil, to speak evil of no one. We don't gossip. We don't slander. We don't demean people. We don't belittle other people. We aren't the kind of people that tell jokes at the expense of another person. We don't disparage other races or ethnicities. We don't speak evil. We don't speak evil of who? It says we speak evil of of no one. Absolutely no one. We, We don't speak evil of anyone. In doing that, we also avoid quarreling, it says. Avoid quarreling is to be to be peaceable. We don't 
pick fights. We try to avoid fights. We're not trying to fight with others. Instead, we are gentle. That word there, gentle, it's, it's, here's a definition. Not insisting on every right or letter of law or custom. Yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. We're courteous. That's another word that's used there. It's, it's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. We don't think that we're better than everyone else. We're not, we're not short-tempered with other people because we think we're better than them. We don't get mad at the people that come in front, in, in front of us in the line of the grocery store, even though that drives you crazy. But we're just, we're just courteous. Um, we, uh, we don't get mad at the waitress who's looking at her phone more than she's looking at her table. We're, we're courteous. We're, we're, we're gentle. Um, when you're at work and your patients are demanding and they, they start wearing on your, on your patients, you can be gentle and you can be courteous, even in that circumstance. When you're at work and your coworkers are lazy, or maybe they just don't pick up on things quickly, you're courteous, you're gentle, you're slow to anger. Our lives have the ring of true humility to them. This is a definition I've just been thinking about lately. C.S. Lewis says this is what true humility is. True humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Isn't that great? True humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. I feel like that summarizes so much of this. It's thinking of ourselves less and seeking to glorify God more. So these are the description. Submissive, obedient, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, peaceable, gentle, courteous. That's how we're supposed to be. That's how we live in this world. Now, what would worldly wisdom tell us if I tell you, this is how we live in the world? They say, you're going to get run over. I mean, you are going to get plowed into the dirt. Nice guys finish last. Greed is good. All these different things. Why would Paul call us to live like this in the dog-eat-dog world that we live in? How are we going to survive? What, what's, how's that going to work? Why? Well, we do it because we've been totally transformed. We are completely new people. We're totally new creations, new eyes that we look at the world with. Transformation assumes that we were something different. You don't transform into the same thing. You transform from something that you once were. And so Paul's going to talk about who we once were. So, so we've talked about um, how we are to live in this world. Uh, we talked about transformed lives in a hostile world. Now let's talk about who we once were. Who we once were. That's in verse 3. Who we once were. Here Paul's going to offer another list. And this is a list of how all of us, apart from God's transforming grace, live or used to live. And what's he begin with? He says, we were foolish. We were foolish. This is probably specifically about spiritual things. We were like the, um, the man in Proverbs. What does the fool say in his heart? There's no God. That's what we were like. That's who we used to be. We were like the, the false teachers in Crete who assumed that they knew the way of God, but they were really foolish. It says, too, that we were disobedient. We were just told to be obedient. But before, we were disobedient, not only to God, but to every authority. We rebelled against everyone. That's our natural inclination, isn't it? Don't tell me what to do. If you tell me what to do, I'm going to do the opposite of what you tell me to do. That's our natural heart. That's our desire. 
apart from the transforming grace of God. The next word there is, it says that we were led astray. It's the picture of someone wandering around aimlessly. Think about a time that you were lost. Maybe driving, maybe walking in a city or in the, the woods maybe. I remember when I went to school in Chicago trying to figure out, you know, I, I didn't know where north or south was. I didn't know Wells Street from Chicago Avenue. I would wander around and everyone knew that I didn't know where I was. It was blatantly obvious. That's how we live in this life apart from God. We just wander around. We're led astray. If we're looking for God, Paul says in Acts 17 that, that we, are, we are groping in the darkness. If we're looking to find him, this is how we're looking. We're just we're all over the place. We're wandering aimlessly. We're led by our fickle desires. We are led by the ever-changing standards of the world. And we are even led by Satan, who is a liar and a deceiver from the very beginning. We, are led, we were led astray. We were slaves to passions and pleasures. We thought that we were free. But in fact, we just did everything that our stomach told us. We did everything our sex drive told us. We did everything our eyes told us. We did everything our greed told us to do. The world fed us. They told us what we wanted. And we just we did exactly what they said. And we became enslaved to our passions and our desires. All of our days were marked by frustration. It says by malice and by anger towards those who got in, the, in our way. And envy by people who got what we wanted that we didn't have. And all of these competing desires in this world meant that everyone hated us. And we hated everyone else too. That's who we were. That's who everyone is apart from Christ. But remember, Paul's not writing this to, for us to think about what the world is like. He's writing this for us to remember who we used to be. Notice that there. It says there in verse 3, For we ourselves... Paul doesn't want us to point the finger at everyone else. He wants us to point the finger back at us and say, this is who I was apart from God's grace. Why? Because Paul's calling us to something different. He's calling us to this, this transformed life in a hostile world. But he doesn't want us to forget that we used to be a part of that hostile world. He wants us to remember where we've come from. When we meet someone that forgets where they, come, where they came from, they went away to college and they got really smart and they came back to your little hometown and they were too good for everyone. They forgot where they came from. They forgot who they really were. There's a different sense of that going on here because who we were was totally different and we have been changed. But Paul wants to see that, that once we were just like the Cretans. We were just like misguided teachers. We were unrighteous. We were filthy. We were dead. We were foolish. We were lost. We were enslaved. We were hated. And we were hateful people. Why? Why would Paul want us to think about that? I think a big part is that it gives us compassion. It gives us compassion as we look at the world to see that those who are apart from Christ are blind to all the foolishness and all the disobedience. They are unaware of the fact that they are led astray and enslaved. They are oblivious to how hate-filled and hateful their lives are. We don't want to join them, but we also don't want to point our finger at them because that's who we were. We want to shine as lights. We want them to know Christ. And knowing who we were, we don't approach the world with arrogance, but with compassion because that's who we were. And how were we changed? How were you changed? Because we're not just called to remember who we were. 
But third, we're called to remember how we were changed. How we were changed. That, that's, that's what starts in verses 4 through 7. Because it's not just that, that we have been changed, but it's how we have been changed. What changed us from the pe- being people like those in verse 3 into people who want to live the life described in verses 1 and 2? That's what verses 4 through 7 tell us. And you know what they're very clear on? It was nothing that you or I did. It was nothing in us. Verse 5 is even very specific. It says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. If you think that you're saved because of works that you do, I don't know how you can read that verse and not say, well, he's saying you're not saved by works done in righteousness. For all of Paul's talk about holiness and right living and good works, he is crystal clear that works are the fruit of salvation. They are not the root of salvation. Good works grow out of a life that has ultimately been changed. And how are we changed? Not by any work that we've done, but by a miracle from outside of us. Nothing inside of us changed us, but God came from outside and transformed us. It's the miracle of the goodness and the loving kindness of God working through the power of the Spirit and the work of Christ. Who changed us? God did. And what I love about this is is it breaks it down. God, and and when we say God, we're talking 100% the full trinity at work. You see that? God our Savior, the the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and then it starts talking about the Holy Spirit, and then it talks about Jesus Christ our Savior. We were changed by a work of the entire trinity in our lives. The power of the full Godhead is what it took to transform us. Let me just point out a few things. I, I love this phrase, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now, there's a sense in which goodness and loving kindness are, are things. But I also think in some way that this is a reference to Jesus himself. That, that in the manger, you know what was in the manger? The goodness and the loving kindness of God in human form. That was when it appeared. It appeared in this world in the person of Jesus Christ. Another thought about Jesus that I, I just just to point out is you notice there in verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now look down in verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Both God and Jesus are called our Savior. I, I think, I don't know how, I, in my mind, and maybe I'm totally messed up, but to me what that's doing is saying that God is our Savior, Jesus is our Savior, they're equally our Savior, therefore they are equal, therefore Jesus is God. I think that's crystal clear that that's what Paul is trying to communicate, the deity of Jesus. Now let me say some things about salvation. So we're talking about how we were were saved. I'll say, let me count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things about salvation, okay? These will be kind of rapid. Salvation is a supernatural work of the Trinity. It's a supernatural, miraculous work of the Trinity. It's so simple there. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, what happened? He saved us. Who did it? He did. Beginning to end, salvation is a work of God. Salvation is the supernatural work of the Trinity. Second thing about salvation, salvation is because of mercy, not good works. Salvation is because of mercy, not good works. He saved us, verse 5. Why? 
not because of works done by his own righteousness. But why? But according to his own mercy. Mercy is unmerited favor. You don't merit mercy. You can't earn mercy. If you earn it, it's no longer mercy. It can't be mercy. Salvation is because of mercy, not good works. Third, salvation is being washed and made new. Salvation is being washed and made new. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us according to his mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The, the words that are used there, it's, it's words that you would use if you're taking a bath. We were bathed in the Holy Spirit. And then it talks about being poured out, which reminds me of a shower. So we got a shower too, right? Poured out. God's Spirit is poured out on us. Washed and made new by the Spirit. All of that language is found in, in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit first comes. It's found in Acts chapter 10 when the Spirit comes on people. This is the coming, the baptizing in the Spirit, and it's a washing. It's a purifying. It's a being made new by the Spirit. Rebirth. Salvation is being washed and made new. Salvation, uh, fourth, is accomplished in the life of Jesus. Salvation is accomplished in the life of Jesus. You see that? It says, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. How are we saved? Because the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God is the Savior. It's his loving kindness that does what? That sends the Son so that the Son can be born and live and die and rise again to become our Savior. Salvation is accomplished in the life of Jesus. Fifth, salvation results in justification. Salvation results in justification. He'll be poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by grace, made right. God requires us uh, to be perfect, but we are not. And so God requires us, our, our sins to be paid for, and this, the, the penalty for sin is eternal death. And so Jesus comes and he lives the life that we could not. He gives us his righteousness that God requires. And then he dies in our place. He couldn't die for any of his own sin because there was none to die for. So he dies for our sin. And he makes us right. He gives us his righteousness. He pays the penalty for our sin so that we can stand before God justified, made right before him by faith. Salvation results in justification. Six, salvation results in adoption. Salvation results in adoption so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. <laughs> Children of God. One of the greatest miracles of salvation. I've said it often. J.I. Packer says that you can understand how much a person understands about salvation by how much they make of the fact that God is their father. I love that. We are adopted by God. He doesn't just save us. He doesn't just make us legally right before him. He brings us into his family and makes us his own. And then seventh, salvation gives us hope. Salvation gives us hope so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation lets us look into the future and know that, that God will come again and give us eternal life. I love the past and the present and the future that's going on in here. 
It's the past, eternity past, where God is, is planning out salvation. And then it comes into sort of the present where Jesus appears and, and saves us. And then it looks to the future of the, the hope that we have of his coming. And if we would remember this, if we would remember who we once were, and if we would remember how we have been changed, then that will transform how we live in this world. Remember who we were, remember how we have been changed, and that will transform us into the, the people that God wants us to be. Who were we? Well, we said we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions. We were nasty people. Malice and envy marked us. Everyone hated us, and we hated them too, so it didn't matter. That's who we were. That's how we lived. And how were we changed? We were changed by the supernatural work of God through the power of the Trinity, by mercy, not by good works, so that we cannot boast before God. And what did God do in that? He made us righteous. He made us objects of mercy. He washed us clean. He renewed us in our mind and our heart. He set us free. He made us heirs. He gave us hope. He loved us, and he made us loving rather than hateful. And all of that happened through the working of the entire Godhead coming to us in mercy and grace. And now we're transformed. We have brand new eyes to look at the world with, and we live transformed lives in the midst of a hostile world. That's who we were, how we were changed, and now we're called to live this transformed life in a world that wants to fight against us. It's an amazing thing. Ultimately, what's God doing? He's making us like Jesus. He wants us to be like Christ. I was thinking about Jesus and how he lived in this world. Um, all around him, the, the people who thought that he was the Messiah thought that what he needed to do was fight the Romans, to fight the, the establishment, and to set up his kingdom through physical strength. But what was his law? His law was love. His gospel was peace. His kingdom was built on humble service, not on um, physical strength. He sought out every good work. He didn't speak evil of anyone, even those who crucified him. He was peaceable. He was gentle. He was courteous. He was humble. He was submissive and obedient to the Father to the point of death. And in that life and death, he not only models how we live as his children, but he accomplishes the salvation that makes impossible for us to live transformed lives. The goodness, the loving kindness, and the mercy of God appear in the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's the person of Jesus Christ whose body was broken and his blood was shed. It's his sacrifice that, that washes and renews us and gives us hope. And it comes to us not by works, and it doesn't come to us through this. It comes to us through faith. Well, if it doesn't come to us through this, then why do we do this? What did Jesus tell us to do? Remember. Remember. Why do we do this? Because we forget. And if we would just remember who we were, apart from God's grace, and we would take the bread and the cup, and remember how he saved us. 
not by good works, not by anything in us, but by the appearance of his love and his mercy and his kindness in Christ. If we would remember that, it would transform us. There's power in this meal, not because the, the cup is, is actually Jesus' blood, not, not because the bread is actually his body, but because of what it means and because what of what we remember. How are we changed? By the renewing of our mind. What a gift that God has given us something that we can put in our mouth to remember what he's done. Something that we can take up in our hands and remember all that he's done for us.